Welcome to the Light Shine Church Sermon Podcast. I'm organizing pastor Rob Douglas, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at this story of sibling rivalry, of reversal of fortunes, of fratricide, of slavery, and of a God who works for good even in the midst of human suffering. So if you have siblings, where do you fall in the birth order? I am the oldest of two. I have one younger brother who's two years uh, younger than me. So experts say that it's common for siblings to go back and forth between loving and detesting one another. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Katie and I have twins, so this is sounds pretty much like the story um, of our lives in our family. Now, the reasons for sibling rivalries are way more varied and complex than I have time to deal with in an hour-long sermon. But the truth is that the brothers and sisters often feel like they have to compete for everything, from toys to attention, from food to love. When my brother and I were kids, we fought all the time. I was two years older and always bigger. My little brother may have been younger and smaller, but he was also pretty clever. Anything that wasn't firmly attached to something else became a weapon that could be thrown at me. Now, this last section of the book of Genesis is often read as if it were a short novella called Joseph and His Brothers. Pastor Jennifer reminded us last week that God had formed a covenant with Abraham, the founding father of our faith, promising descendants as numerous as there are stars in the sky. I love what Jennifer said last week. Um, I wonder if anyone besides me walked outside and looked up. So that faith that was passed on from Abraham to his son Isaac, who in turn passed it down through his son Jacob, would have 12 sons, 12, Joseph being the youngest. But we know that a household even a large one with 12 sons is not a nation. So God's promise to make a great nation from Abraham is exactly what is at stake in our story today. In this third generation of patriarchs with Jacob, the seeds of a nation of Israel, they are born in these 12 sons. Joseph surprisingly takes center stage. He's a boy of only 17 years old, but it's the question that we have to ask before we even read the first part of our story is, is Joseph going to be the right one to lead the clan? This is what the story begs us to ask. Will he continue to adhere to the covenant faithfulness of Abraham, Isaac, and his father Jacob before him? So we're about to find out. Here is the first part of our story from Genesis 37, 3 to 8. <clears throat> now Israel, or Jacob, that's cha he changed, God changed his name to Israel, so we know who this is, loved Joseph more than any of his children. Let's just pause right here for a second. 
we can see the problem coming. He loved Joseph more than any of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There were binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. Joseph was the spoiled, pampered, and favored son of his father, Jacob. Now for us oldest siblings, can any of us relate to this scenario? <laughs> this favored status, along with his fancy dreams of ruling, which he flaunted in front of his brothers, caused them to despise their younger brother, Joseph. Perhaps the oddest feature of his dreams is that the dominant image is sheaves of wheat. This is pretty strange for a family of shepherds, don't you think? It says something. It says that this dream belongs to another place, a foreign place, a place with fertile soil and an agrarian society. These hated but prophetic dreams of Joseph will soon take us to Egypt. And we know just from the dreams that God is up to something strange here. And what about that multicolored coat? You know, the one that they made a musical about? A coat fit for a ruler, a coat given to Joseph by his father, that coat was the constant reminder that one day the older brothers would bow down to the youngest. Now, very similar to today, clothing in the ancient world was a sign of status. A coat like this couldn't just be ordered on Amazon Prime and delivered in two days. It took forever to make it was made at great cost by his father. This kind of robe that Joseph got, his brothers didn't have it. Of course, his brothers found all of this to be totally unacceptable. And the question is, can you really blame them? They want a rule too. They want the fancy coat. And maybe more than anything, they want the love of their father. Now, today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're breaking the story into three parts. Here's a question that's going to come up on the screen. You'll have one minute to reflect on it, to talk about it with someone that's in your household, or to use uh, the chat bar if you want to throw out a response. But it's a little bit fun and serious at the same time. If you were among Joseph's 11 older brothers, what would you do with this arrogant young brother of yours. How would you respond if you were them? One minute.
Here's the second part of the story. From Genesis 37, 17 to 22, we'll find out what the brother's response to Joseph was. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Then Judah, one of the brothers, said to his other brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. The brothers decided to put an end to the dream and to the dreamer. But there was one thing that the brothers hadn't considered. God too had dreams. God had plans for preservation for this newly forming nation of Israel. Otherwise, how could the promises that Jennifer talked about last week come true? While Joseph's stock is rising in Egypt, rising all the way, in fact, to becoming number two in the nation, in the entire empire behind Pharaoh. Joseph's family was starving in Canaan due to famine. And it's the famine that our narrator uses to drive this fractured and highly dysfunctional family toward an encounter of reconciliation on Egyptian soil. Jacob, in an act of desperation, sends his sons to Egypt of all places in search of food. The big question is this, what could God possibly do with this toxic family situation? If Joseph destroys his brothers for their evil deeds, then God's promises would certainly be in jeopardy. Here we go with the second question for one minute. Now you're putting yourselves in Joseph's shoes, about to face the very brothers who conspired to kill you and sold you into slavery. What would you do? Here we go.
But now the conclusion of the story of Joseph, it's actually quite a bit longer than this. We've condensed it into these three sections from chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph said to his brothers, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? But Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended everything that has happened for good in order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he assured them, speaking kindly to them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jacob has now died, and the brothers are rightly afraid that Joseph will exact his revenge on them for their evil deeds, and they beg Joseph's forgiveness. Joseph's dreams have now come true as his brothers bow down to him just as he said they would when he was 17 years old. They offer themselves as his servants. Joseph now has an important choice to make, and he has all the power in the world to make any choice that he chooses. And here's the big surprise of the story. God has given the bratty, arrogant, spoiled, pampered, powerful Joseph a tender heart. This is the change that God has brought about through this time. When I thought about this, it reminded me of a Grinch-like moment with the Who's in Whoville. Anybody? Joseph weeps with his brothers and offers them forgiveness. This story could have gone a completely different direction. It very well, the Bible loves, it is not afraid to go in different directions. Just think about the Cain and Abel narrative. Other brothers, brothers who couldn't figure it out. It could have gone that direction, but instead it shows us another way. It shows us an alternative possibility. Joseph is actually foreshadowing the way of Jesus. As I reflected on this myself with some of the things that have gone on in the last couple months in this country, what it reminded me of was some of the great civil rights leaders. And now we're talking a lot about John Lewis, who refused to meet violence with violence, but rather met hate with love. As I've been learning more about him since his death, I find myself moved and inspired by his story. One of the big six of the civil rights movement, John Lewis continued to fight for people's rights ever since joining Congress in 1987. He grew up, of course, in the era of racial segregation. He became a freedom writer. He spoke at the uh, March on Washington in 1963. He led the demonstration 
that became known as Bloody Sunday. And in 2011, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He, of course, was inspired by Dr. King. He went to seminary in order to learn nonviolent protest. This nonviolence was tested in his life many times. He endured arrests and beatings. One crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge left him with a fractured skull. He helped millions of people of color register to vote as a member of Congress. He oversaw multiple renewals of the Voting Rights Act. But think about this, being unjustly imprisoned and beaten multiple times by angry mobs, he could have chosen a different way, but he didn't. He too, like Joseph before him, stopped the escalating cycle of violence. And by so doing, he helped change and shape the world that we find ourselves in today. We know that we have a long way to go, but Jesus points us always in the direction of disrupting patterns of violence and revenge. As followers of Jesus, we have a choice on how we will respond to hate and evil. Violence and revenge is the typical response. But our God, as we see in this passage and so many others, is anything but typical. Even through the humiliations and the injustices Joseph endured at the hands of his own brothers. God, the scripture says, is developing in him humility and empathy and even a tender heart. And so the house of Jacob, whose name was symbolically changed to Israel, is now unified in the land of Egypt. And we have the seeds of a great nation that was promised to Abraham. I just want to finish with a thought on verse 20. This is what Joseph said. Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. In order to preserve a numerous people. And so in this story, we see our God actively working a terrible and toxic, traumatic situation for good. The scriptures just simply say the Lord was with Joseph. <laughs> Through all of that, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was able to look back over his life, and when he did this, what he saw was the gracious and loving hand of God at work even through all the pain. So the gospel announcement, the good news, is of course that Joseph, who was dead, now lives. And Israel, that was in danger of extinction, is now provided for by the grace of God in the most unexpected manner. We know that this kind of reconciliation is never easy. It wasn't easy for Joseph. I'd be curious to know what your answers were in those two first rounds of chats. Mine, my response wouldn't have been Joseph's response, I don't think. This wasn't an easy thing for Joseph if we put ourselves in his shoes. 
It wasn't easy for John Lewis either. It won't be easy for us. But we also know that the hugs and the tears of these brothers, we know that they didn't solve all of their problems. There was still pain. There was still trust issues. But I love how this story ends. After the hugs and the tears, there was conversation. The brothers talked. Imagine that. It was a conversation that I can only imagine that God used to help them heal and become a family once again. And I can't help but wonder if this same kind of reconciliation is going to be possible for us today. If we could learn to, like Joseph, disrupt the cycle of violence and revenge and instead learn the art of conversation, which of course will require listening. Amen. Friends, we're going to spend one more minute with one more question. Having reflected on the story of Joseph, how might you disrupt the cycle of revenge and violence in a situation that you're facing today?